Before I begin the talk, I'd like to, um, to share two things. Um, one is um, it's just this really great sense of appreciation for all of you. And uh, Gina and I were saying just a bit earlier, um, what an amazing group you are. Just to build up your egos. Particularly the sense of just whatever we throw at you, you just dive right in there. And uh, it's a very, very precious um, kind of process to be sharing together, to, just to, to offer that. I want to share that sense of appreciation as the days unfold. The other is. Um, I think I may have mentioned it already, I'm not sure, but the slight um, sense of paranoia I keep having that I'm going to kind of give a talk that you've heard before. Please <laughs> 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 keep a beginner's mind. Like I have no idea sometimes if, you know, how often I've said something and in what way. So bear with me if that ends up being the case. So a few, um, a few months ago, when I was teaching a retreat in India, um, someone, someone came um, to ask a question in a, in a one-to-one. And she, she shared with me that she had, um, I can't remember if it was read or heard, um, a quote from, from some um, Asian meditation master. Um, that had really um, kind of left an imprint and uh, that raised a, a lot of questioning about her own practice. And she couldn't, you know, she couldn't remember the quote exactly and of course I can remember it even less. But uh, the gist of it was um, something along the lines of um, that if, the, you know, we should be really careful um, of not meditating for selfish reasons. Now, if we self, if we meditate for selfish reasons, um, you know that's that, that's something that we should be wary of. Um, that, that our motivation for practice um, should be for the welfare of all beings. And she came because. Um, you know, this this was freaking her out a little bit, and and she was, you know, she said, "Well, you know, I don't, I don't really understand." You know, she was hoping that I could, I could help her. Little did she know. Um, so, you know, she was she was wondering, what does that actually mean? You know, what does that actually mean, and how does it apply to my practice? Um, you know, because she said, if I'm honest. You know, the reasons I practice are um, because it makes me happy and it makes me more open and it um, improves my relationships with other people and it supports me to let go of unwholesome habits of, of mind and action. And so her question was, well, is that selfish? Am I being selfish? If that, you know, if I'm honest, that's my motivation, that's my practice, you know, because it makes me happy, because it increases my sense of openness, because it improves my relationships 
And because it supports me to let go of unwholesome um, habits and, and ways of being. And so she was saying, you know, am I, am I being selfish? Am I misusing? Am I misusing my practice? So that was the, that was the inquiry. Just very, very beautiful. You know, very, very beautiful, very um, honest inquiry. And so we looked at it a bit more, and, and the invitation is, is kind of what I'd like to do today together, is to look at that a little bit more together. So what happens when I'm happier? If my motivation for practice and the outcomes, the fruit of the practice is that I'm happier and more open. How does that affect my interactions, the way I am in the world, the way I perceive things, the way I respond? If my relationships are more harmonious, how does that affect the people that I'm in relationship with or in relationship to? And so, really looking at that, you know, not just, you know, just not just these few sentences that I said, but really looking at that that deep effect that that has, which is a lot of what we've been doing together over these months. Yeah. So a lot of what we've been doing together is we've been looking at all these layers of connection between practice and our lives, service as practice, service as relationship, looking at all of that, how it all connects, how it all feeds each other, mutually supports each other. And I, I hope, I kind of, I not, not only hope I know, but one of the things we've each seen to some degree is that my, my own happiness and the cultivation of my own happiness cannot be disconnected from the well-being of others. Just not possible. Just not possible. Cannot be disconnected. And the deeper we go, the deeper we go into this journey, the deeper we go into the exploration of of the path, into meditation, into service, into all these aspects of our path, the deeper we go, the clearer this becomes. The clearer this becomes. The more we see our mutuality, the more we see our interconnectedness. My happiness cannot be, is not, ever disconnected from the well-being of others. And one really beautiful aspect of it is that it's like a it's a it's a process that keeps feeding itself. Yeah? The more we see this, the deeper it goes. The more in tune we are with this, the deeper it goes. seeing the connection between all these you know, I think when she came with that question it had so many of the aspects you know, the letting go of the harmful also, the unskillful 
you know, naturally happens through seeing interconnection. Yeah. Less likely. I was just remembering reading um, something else from that book that I had the other day. which the name just eludes me at the moment, but never mind. How can I help? Yeah, and it's a testimony from a soldier, um, I think in Vietnam, and he just describes this moment where he, he, he stopped being able to shoot anyone. He could not shoot anyone anymore. He just couldn't do it. And the way he describes it is because he could see. He could see. That, that's how he describes it. Yeah? Not he could see this or that, see human, see a... He could see. That's, that's the language. That moment of seeing the neutrality. And he, he just couldn't... Couldn't shoot anymore. Very powerful. So that this, the deeper, the stronger this insight is, the, the less harm we're actually capable of causing in the world. And equally, the stronger our intention towards non-harming is, the, the more clear our seeing becomes, mutually supportive. So I wanna, I wanna give another example of this. This is from a, a documentary film I saw quite a few years ago. It's called The Gatekeepers. And um, it's, a, it's a documentary film. It's just it's six interviews with um, six men. Each of them um, is a retired head of the Israeli internal security, whatever they are, like the FBI but much tougher, as far as right. And they're all, um, you know, they're all really tough men. Right. You know, some of them are very old, but they're all really tough. You can see that they're fighters. And this, this really struck me, um, because it's very clear, and it's very clear that they, they, you know, they don't come, they're not Dharma practitioners as far as I know. You know they don't come from, from this world, they come from a different set of conditions and life experiences and views. And the interviews are very, um, you know, they're just, they're exploring within specific aspects of their role and specific situations and historical situations that they were involved with within the role that they had. Um, all to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And the really striking thing about this film is that um, all the six interviews conclude in the same way. They're independent, held independently of each other. But each, each man, each person, towards the end, shares their insight, what they've learned, from life and from the specific role they fulfilled. And it's the same insight. 
And the insight is that an attitude of violence, even when it's framed as defense, an attitude of violence, even when it's framed of defense, as defense, cannot solve a conflict. Cannot solve a conflict. An attitude of violence, and as Dharma practitioners, we can go beneath that. It's not just an attitude of violence, it's an attitude of separation. Even when it's framed as defense, it cannot solve a conflict. And so in their specific situation, you can, you know, rephrase what they're saying. Um, some of them are actually, actually say this, they say it. What they realize is that in order for Israelis to live in safety and with well-being, Palestinians have to live in safety and well-being. Or at least there has to be a compromise. But everyone's needs has to be taken into account. Dialogue has to happen. Violence is not, cannot bring a solution. Cannot bring a solution. And I, I, I found uh, this film incredibly moving. And also when I speak about it, one of the things, it's not the first time I've given this example. I find it incredibly moving that as human beings, under many, many different sets of conditions, we're able to know this truth. We're able to see this truth, to know this truth. And we're able to see the reality in which I whether it's the personal eye or the family eye or the national eye, whatever our identification is with, I am not the whole story. Yeah. I don't actually exist separately. And so my well-being includes the well-being of others. Not separate. And I was kind of I see this note I made here, which you know I think has definitely been influenced by all the tree exercises we've been doing. It's that real acknowledgement that, and I think someone said it yesterday, we're all leaves on a tree, on a branch. And then that tree is one tree amongst many in a forest or a, or a meadow. And that forest is one as one part of the Earth. You know, that Earth is one planet in a galaxy. On we go. You know, but that <coughs> sense of this body mind experience, heart, isn't finite. It does not end anywhere. It's not separate. And part of what we do in practice is that we keep playing with that perspective and these points of view. That's one of the things we do. Shifting the perspective. Shifting the point of view and identification. So, you know, as you all know, in in Dharma teachings, this is a really core teaching. It really underlies the teachings, the practices, and it, it keeps getting more and more refined. 
and more and more um, central to what we do. So it's, it's, the, it's the kind of underlying ground of the teaching. Kind of there interwoven in all the different aspects of them and all the practices. And if we reflect on the different things we've been exploring, the, the immeasurables, the pranaviharas, the paramis, you know, that this is what this is what they're constantly Tongalan meditations, that's what they're based on, that's what they're um, helping us to embody, encouraging us to embody and to explore. And so it's underlying in the teachings, but it's also something that we um, can really take up as an intention. Yeah, we can really take up as an intention and that we can apply. So we have insights, we have moments when we see this in different ways. And then the application of that, application of insight. helps us to more deeply integrate in the body. More deeply integrate in the body. So in the tradition, and we've used this this word a lot, you know, this whole way of looking at life is is called um, bodhicitta. I'm sure you've said this before. <laughs> Which literally means an awake or awakened heart mind. Very beautiful. So it prioritizes um, this seeing of the mutuality and the interconnectedness. It prioritizes it as a practice, as an intention. One of the most beautiful um, images of this, of bodhicitta, that I've ever heard um, was something um, that I heard from, from Baba Amte, the founder of the leprosy community that I spent time in. And um, before we do the work retreat there, we always go and do a silent uh, week, a silent meditation retreat in, a, in their agricultural lands, which are quite far from the, from the main project. And uh, that used to be his favorite place in all the projects. And by the time I knew him, he was, um, was in his 90s and he had a lot of health problems, so he wasn't able to travel. So every time he would come back from Somnap, from the silent meditation retreat, to Amandawan, from the main project, um, we would go and see him. And he would ask us, Did you see that bird? Did you see Tanaka? No. Um, you know, how is that? How is this? And he was also always very interested in the group. And one year, he um, he said to to the group that was with us, he said, you know, I don't know much about meditation, but when I was a young man. Someone took me once to see a very special place. It was a tree. And the roots of the tree, it was a very, very big old, old tree. The roots of the tree were actually visible, at least partially. The roots of the tree had grown in such a way that they created a cave. They created a, 
must have been a small cave, but it created a space that you could crawl into. And he said that that was such a special, um, that cave was such a special place that the wild creatures would come and rest there. The wild animals would come and rest there. And he said, you know, I don't know much about meditation, but that's my, my feeling is that's what meditation is. So meditation is, is from your own life, from your own creeness, creating space that is so safe and quiet that the wild creatures can come and rest safely as they are in their wildness. And for me, that's you know, one of the strongest images that really feel it here of bodhicitta, of this intention of creating a, a place so safe that anything, no matter how wild, no matter how shy, can come and rest. And so the question that was coming up for me today as I was reflecting on this, you know, is what happens to our practice when we view it in this way, with this kind of intention, as the creation of a place of safety and of rest for all beings. That is there in the practice, including ourselves, of course, in that place of rest and safety. What happens to our practice if we bring in this view? And what happens to our lives? What happens to our lives? And I feel like it's a real, such a beautiful um, and important question to bring up, and maybe particularly at this point where we are together. You know, because Someone said to me today in an interview, you know, we're, we're talking about the ending of the program, but it's not actually going to end, you know, on Wednesday, lunchtime. It's not actually going to end, you know, because the movement of life through us is carrying on, it's carrying on. And this process that we are in isn't defined yeah, by the start of living fearlessly with change or the ending. It's not defined by that. So, you know, we have the real possibility to continue intentionally, consciously, continue this process, to continue this um, exploration, to continue to, to nourish what creates places of safety and of rest within ourselves and in the world. I'd like to bring back at this point something I touched on two days ago, with, which was Rob's um, way of describing practice as ways of looking. 
And in this context, using bodhicitta, using um, this intention of creating safe, restful places, of reducing suffering, of increasing freedom. So seeing that as a way of looking that we can apply to our lives. <coughs> and a little bit about what I mean here, or what Rob means here, because I'm pretty much um, you know, stealing this with permission from him. So this idea of ways of looking as, you know, that there's always a lens through which we perceive and know experience. And that lens, that lens affects our view, it actually affects what we see and how we see things and how we respond. And that way of looking is usually habitual. Yeah? And it's not intentional. Yeah, so kind of the, the classic examples is, you know, I'm physically tired. I will have a habitual way of viewing the world when I'm physically tired. And so will you. And most of us will have that. Whatever that is, you know, it might just be disinterest, it might be irritation, it might be that being tired makes you relax, you know, and actually there's an openness there. And it could be different ways, but there will be a habitual way of looking at life that then affects perception. And we all, again, just to, to give a, a few, it's, I'm going off in order to come back. So, you know, we, we all have that, we all know the experience of the same event happening, porridge for breakfast, um, and how that affects me um, on a day when it's hot and on a day when it's cold, on a day when I woke up rested and on a day when I woke up grumpy and miserable. You know, that same event, porridge for breakfast, or morning meditation, or whatever it is, the same event, and actually the state of mind or the way of looking will affect what we actually perceive, what I actually perceive and how I um, how I respond. So, you know, porridge for breakfast one day will be great, you know, I want something warming and comforting, and the next day will be yuck. This again. Why can't we have music like a guy in house? I'm just joking, Jane, nothing. I'm going to stay really steady and not go into a whole, a whole um, tangent about porridge. So, recognising this, you know, recognising that there's ways of looking at play that are there is really important. And then what's even more important and what's more exciting is that we actually can work with these. You know, they're not, they're habitual, but they're not fixed. They're not set. And actually, some, one of the things that changes through practice, and the more we are aware of it, the more intentionality we have, the more it can change. And through cultivation of things like, <coughs> like the Brahma Viharas, the Paramis, um, that we've been exploring here, bodhicitta, um, two things can happen. One is that our ways of looking can become more intentional. So I can notice, oh, I'm looking at things through this habitual way of looking, conditioned way of looking, of, you know, oh, I'm a great organiser and I always know the best thing that could happen. You know, that's a way of looking. 
you know, the critical mind or whatever it is. And then I can intentionally change that. I say, oh, what would be a what would be a friendly way of looking here? What would be a compassionate way of looking here? What would be a generous way of looking here? I can intentionally shift with a lot of gentleness. It's not a yeah, it's it's an it's a process rather than a button that or a switch that we, we change. So that's one thing that changes through cultivation with ways of looking. And the other is that the default way of look, ways of looking start to change. Yeah? Because we all have the default settings where we land most commonly. With our mind states and the way we look at the world and our experience. And so these default ones start to change. Mindfulness, by the way, is another way of looking. Also. All ways of looking. And so the default ways of looking start to change and move towards more wholesome ways of looking, which reduces suffering and increases why like, why bring in more about the ways of looking in here? One is because I'm totally in love with them at the moment. <laughs> but um, even more because bodhicitta and all the practices we've been engaged in are ways of looking and that we can practice them in that way. We can practice them in that way. And so this is really, you know, it's, it's such a, you know, wholehearted practice which... You're all here because you have that wholeheartedness. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't still be here after 10 months. It's a wholehearted practice. And it takes everything that we've been both um, kind of resourcing ourselves for or utilizing over the months here and also cultivating at the same time. You know, the willingness, the commitment, the patience, the humor. Yeah, all these, all these qualities that support us—the acceptance, the acceptance—and so the bodhicitta way of looking, I find so powerful in particular because it—it's the ground from which we grow, and it's also a resting place. It's also a resting place of that intention or that aspiration. And it, it's incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful, and yet very soft at the same time. Like that moss that we saw growing up the big tree yesterday. You think of that moss, how strong it is to grow in that way, that way. Yeah, it's so strong, and yet so soft at the same time, so delicate, and it doesn't take much to rip it out. Delicate. And that's that's the power of bodhicitta. It's very powerful and yet very soft and very fluid. It can fit in. It can, you know, it's flexible, it's pliable. And it's available in any situation. Always available. Because all beings includes this one. So it's always available. And so I'd just like to say a little bit more about 
bodhicitta um, and how to apply it as a way of looking particularly. And so one way, it's actually not that we apply, that it's applied, is an immediate natural response. You know, we all know that. You know, someone walks by us and they trip. It's involuntary, isn't it? It's just intuitive we reach out to stop them. And I always love this um, thing they say on the airplanes about the, when the gas masks fall off, you know, make sure that you put yours on before you help someone else. I always find that's a teaching of bodhicitta. <laughs> that intuition that we, that we have, you know, that they need to say that because people would help someone else before they help themselves. Especially if it was a child or an elderly person or someone that couldn't do it. And it's a natural, it's a natural movement of, of the human being. So the times when it's immediate and effortless, and the fact that it's immediate and effortless doesn't mean that it's not valuable or important or not to be cherished. Yeah? Because they're really important. When we see that movement in us, when we feel it, really important to acknowledge and to absorb that. It gives us that experiential taste of it and the experiential knowing that it is here. You know, it's not just something I'm aspiring to <coughs> in the in the um, Deva God realms, you know, it's here. In this mind and body it exists. And so it's really important to acknowledge that and to, to notice it as much as we can. And sometimes that movement is there but the action doesn't follow through. And, and it's also important <coughs> to notice that, to notice the movement of the heart, to notice the movement of the being. And even though it gets blocked by other things, by something else, that movement has power in itself. So to really notice and acknowledge and appreciate that when it's there. The second um, way of... of um, bodhicitta as a way of looking is um, something I called in my notes um, everyday intentionality <laughs> sometimes I write things and I myself don't understand them hopefully the rest of the notes will clarify so it's everyday situations small situations that we normally wouldn't notice um, for example you know we're sitting here in the hall at a meditation time and we're getting really restless I really want to get up and go, get out of here, go, go and walk or whatever. But something's stopping me. Yeah? I'm not, I don't follow. And if I was alone here in the room, if we're honest, most of us would get up and go. Certainly I would, when that, when that restlessness arises. So what is it that's stopping us? At least part of it is that wish to not disturb others, yeah? that wish to support the practice of others, the, the knowing that if I get up and go, it's going to disturb others. And so that's kind of, it's, it's, not a, it's not as intuitive and immediate as that kind of reaching out if someone's tripping. But it's a strong force in our lives of, you know, we could say consideration and awareness of of the impact of our actions on others. And a lot of the choices we make. Yeah, around around diet, around 
and you know, different life choices that we make fall into that category. They're everyday things. We don't see them as spiritual necessarily. But they have that intentionality in them. And again, they, they really, um, it's really helpful to notice them, to, to pay attention and to absorb. And the third way of um, looking, bodhicitta way of looking, <coughs> is um, what I'm calling now just intentional bodhicitta way of looking. So intentional way of looking, which is, you know, definitely also underlies the other two and supports them. And the image that I was getting, it's like a, a gentle shifting of the weight. Now, where is the weight of my life? Where is it? balanced. And so it's a gentle shifting of the weight from self-concern to wider and wider levels of concern. And a real, like when I say shifting of the weight, it's like in the yoga, po- yoga posture. You know, when you shift the weight from one leg to the other or balance between the two. It's that sense of, you know, it's not a, you know, reaching out, so I'm going to lose my balance. But a shifting, seeing how can I shift the weight? How can I shift the weight into something wider? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so bodhicitta is, is both um, you know, a real aspiration and to kind of also highlight the the beauty and the power of aspiration. It's a real aspiration and aspiration in the way that it helps us open to our potential, help us grow into our potential, help us embody our potential. So it's an aspiration or, you know, we could even use the word goal, which I don't so much like, but it's got some use. But it's also a very immediate practice so it's also a very immediate practice, and, and this is really, really what I'm trying to get at. You know, the importance of the aspiration, which kind of opens us to what is possible, but also very immediate, very immediate. We can bring it in, and we certainly don't need to wait till we're perfected, yeah, or whatever our ideal is, you know, whatever language we use, until I. Um, work this ish- these issues out or until I'm enlightened or until um, I'm a better meditator or until, until, until. We don't need to wait till we're perfected. We can feel the aspiration and we can apply it. Just as you've been doing over the 10 months and preaching to the converted. You know, you've been doing it. You've been doing it. This is what you've been doing. You've been applying this aspiration. You've been applying this deep aspect of who you are. Been tending to it and bringing it, bringing, shifting the weight to that, shifting the weight of your being to that, to be centered and balanced there. One of the aspects of, of bodhicitta practice that I love the most is 
emphasis on um, using whatever is arising in experience right now as fuel for the practice. So nothing is outside. You know, nothing is unacceptable or not useful. Whatever is arising in experience. One of Penanchodron's books is called The Wisdom of No Escape. There's no escape. (laughs) Because whatever is arising, our shadow sides, the horrible aspects of our personality that we think we're able to hide from everyone, whatever is arising, difficult challenges in our lives, whatever is arising, it's an opportunity for practice. It's possible to practice and to use it as a fuel for deeper understanding. Deeper understanding of of the human situation. The human being. And this deeper understanding is both a doorway. It's a doorway and a tool that can transform us. Can transform us in really surprising ways. So I'd just like to end with um, going back, going back to this person who came to me and asked that question at the beginning about selfish and selfless practice. And she asked this question in the silent retreat that preceded the work retreat in Ananda in the Jefferson And then she came on the work retreat. And on the work retreat, we um, give people the opportunity to choose. Each person chooses where they want to work in the community. So we do a tour in the beginning, and everyone chooses according to their sense of what would be possible and useful for them in their practice. And one of the places we visit in the tour is the old people's home, which you've heard me speak about. <laughs> that I know. And so this particular uh, friend of mine, um, she felt that doing massage and the personal care, the nail cutting, the massage, the hair, in the old people's home, that would be too much for her. And so she chose to, um, in the morning she worked in the kitchen, and in the afternoons um, she went to the old people's home and she took people out on wheelchair rides. That's one of the, the things that people also do. And that was, that was, the, that was the edge of her comfort zone, and, and she really flourished. Right towards the end of the retreat was the, the day, the last work day of the retreat. In the morning, when we were there with the people who did more of the personal care, towards the end of the morning, we um, realized that one of the elderly men uh, wasn't doing very well. And um, he was... Um, someone that we'd known for quite a few years um, and had no fingers at all um, and was finding it difficult to walk at that stage and he had just, yeah, something was, wasn't and he also was very confused um, this year 
and um, we just that day you could see he really wasn't well, and he was um, kept taking his bandages off, and um, he was um, he was soiled, his clothes were soiled, and and so we we tried to see with um, with the attendants there um, if they would wash him and um, help him change his clothes, and we weren't sure if that was going to happen or not. So we decided that um, in the afternoon I would come back um, with one of the other people who worked in the mornings and we checked with um, the other two people who were doing the wheelchair rides if, if they would be happy to, to be there as, as backup. And they said yes. So one of them is, is this friend. And it turned out that we came back in the afternoon and, and we did need to, to, to wash and change him. And it turned out that this specific, specific person who had felt this was beyond her edge actually was the person who ended up just stepping in there and washing and cleaning and dressing. And after we were done, as she sat next to um, to Danu, that was this elderly, beautiful elderly man's name. And she had one arm around him and she was feeding him. Um, we brought some sweets that afternoon for all the, the elderly guys and she was feeding him sweets. And the reason I'm, um, I'm sharing the story was not just that that happened, but the impact that it had. So, first of all, just to rewind, you know, three weeks from a sense of, you know, massage or cutting nails would be too much to actually washing and changing. And the sense in the doing of this complete love flowing through and a complete rightness of experience. So much that she said two things afterwards. I'm definitely coming back next year. (laughs) was one. And the second was when I go back home, I'm going to change my profession. And she's come back home and she's quit her job in a bank that she's had for about 15 years. And she's looking and she's going into, into camp. And so the surprise, yeah, the kind of can arise. I think again we've all experienced to some degree and sometimes it's just we think we're not ready but life thinks something else. And that cultivation of practice and service which allows that doorway to open for us.
and allows transformation to happen. So that was the last day of the work retreat and the retreat ended the next day. And the day after that, Nathan and I were still at the community and we went back to the old people's home to check on Danny. And he had died two hours before we came. And we went to sit with the body. He was still wearing the clothes that Jess had dressed him in. And somehow knowing, you know, that that was possibly the last loving contact he had had. Just made, made it all even more uh, powerful for us and for her. So we never know. We never know. But that aspiration which is at least a spark, if not a blaze, in each of us to keep it going, to keep it going, because it can take us, can take us beyond the edges, and it can offer to others <coughs> things that are of much greater value than we can ever imagine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.